day. So please, if, we, if you would turn to Matthew 18, reading from verse 15 to 20. If a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. This is the word of God. Shall we pray? Lord, we pause before your word. We come humbly, but we come. For there is none other that we could go to. To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. So speak life into our hearts, we pray. Speak life into us that breathing the breath of life we may come alive again. Father, there is so much that would kill us around us. There is so much that would destroy us. And forgive us for caving in. Forgive us for succumbing to those seductive voices speaking into our lives. Lord, heal us of our sins. Refresh us, we pray. Encourage us and and give us strength to walk afresh with you. Lord, you have a sure word for us this day, and so we pray that you would speak, not me. I'm a man, I'm not God, but you are God. So Lord, would you please speak in a way that I would not come through, but your spirit will come through. So hide me behind the cross, I pray, and may Jesus alone be exalted, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. I've been in two minds this week with regards to the title of my sermon. I should like so much to call this sermon Members of One Another, Part 3. We've, we had two parts earlier on. And then I, on second thought, I could have entitled today's sermon Why Churches Die. Now you might think, why such diverse alternatives from members of one another to the possibility of naming this sermon, Why Churches Die? Well, I, I want to show you how close these two diverse, seemingly diverse thoughts are. are, are, are. They, they are really very close to one another. Let me begin this way. You know, Jesus says that the church... He says to Peter, anyway, I'm sure you know this. Jesus says to Peter, the church will never die. 
the gates of hell will never prevail against it. You remember that. And yet churches have died. Heaps of churches have died. Lots of churches have died. I myself have seen churches die. And perhaps you too. The local church can die. Well, the church at Sardis, remember, in Revelation 3.1, has been described by Jesus to be a dead church. Strange, a dead church. There it is, Revelation 3.1. So churches do die. So what does Jesus mean when he says the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church? The church shall never die. Jesus is talking about the invisible, universal church. That church will never die. The church triumphant. The church militant. That's the church that will never die. But there are two kinds of churches. The invisible church and the local visible church. The universal church and the visible church. When he says that the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church, he's talking about the invisible universal church. As to the local church, churches do die. I think someone or somewhere, oh, I'm not sure about that. I better not give that example since I'm not too clear about that. But, but you do know of churches that have died. And there are two ways at least churches may die. Number one, it may simply cease to exist as we have seen in many European countries. We spent some time in Holland. Uh, two times I think we paid a visit to Holland two times in our lives. And uh, just going through the countryside and going through the cities, you just see now churches that have been turned into workshops, churches that have been now turned into studios, into theatres. So churches may die that way. They may simply cease to exist. But there is another way in which a church may die. And that is this. They may die inwardly. Outwardly it seems to be throbbing with life, pulsing with a pulse of life. But it's dead. John Stott says that in so many churches, the people continue to congregate. The congregation continues to congregate. The minister continues to minister. But the lampstand has been removed from the church. The Spirit of God no longer dwells there. Only once in my life have I entered a church like that. I preached there. I was invited to preach there. And I could stench, smell the stench of death the moment I walked in. But what kills the church? There are at least four things that kills a church. Number one, persecution. The church of Smyrna, you remember Revelations 2.9, was killed by persecution. Number two, by false teaching. The church at Ephesus and Pergamos were threatened by uh, death through false teaching. Thirdly, the church could die through worldliness, through blatant immorality or subtle materialism. That's the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2.20. Fourthly, the church could die or could be killed by indifference, jeopardized uh, by indifference. That's the church at Ephesus. Now, of course, there may be other ways in which a church could die and lose her life. But these are very effective ways through which churches have been wiped out from the face of the earth. One, persecution. Two, false teachings. Three, worldliness. And four, indifference. What about Christ's sanctuary? What about our church? 
Is Satan making any progress in killing us off? As a pastor of this church, I think about this almost every day. In what way is Satan in the process of killing us off? Well, we might not face persecution of any kind. We may not experience false teachings in our midst. In fact, we may be we may boast of sound teaching in our midst, but could worldliness be killing us off? Could indifference be killing us off, taking its toll? Our ill commitment to the church? Yes, you come Sunday after Sunday, you're here, but really you're ill committed to the church. Is that killing us off? See, the church is God's idea. And there are as many reasons as you kind can find in the Bible for why God invented the church. But supremely, for our purpose this afternoon, I want to make a lot out of, out of the fact that the Lord instantiated the church for the purpose of protecting the flock, encouraging the flock, and growing the flock to maturity, to be like Christ. The church exists apart from many other reasons for building you up, for guarding your faith, for protecting you, for encouraging you, for discipling you. The church is God's blueprint for gospel living. And yet, there is just so much of reservation to be not just a part of the church, but to be an integral part of the church. I see a lot of reservation, really. I see a lot of attendees, and there are a lot of attendees, but I see a lot of ill commitment in our midst you know people often say oh I'm spiritual I'm just not religious have you heard that said before to you oh I'm I'm really I'm spiritual I'm highly spiritual I'm not just religious now when people say that it's always it's, it's quite often a mask for saying I'm really interested in God but I'm not at all interested in the church is their way of saying that. And usually they have stories about how they have been burnt by the church, by abusive leadership, by demanding leadership. And what they do now is this. They go into self-shepherding, which is most unbiblical. It isn't a biblical idea at all to be worshipping in your garden on a Sunday morning and, and, and refusing to be in church. That's self-shepherding and that's the most unbiblical idea about the church you can find. But you could well be saying the same thing. Isn't it a shock that you could well be adopting the same attitude in your heart? You could be attending church regularly, but deep in your heart you could well be saying, I'm only interested in God. I'm only interested in coming to this church on a Sunday afternoon just to hear the word, but I'm not really interested in walking with the church. Now this is the kind of indifference that is killing the church off. And it may be the process of killing this church off. There is no one anothering that is happening here. There is no teaching one another. There is no counseling one another. There is no confessing of sins to one another. There is no admonishing one another. There is no bearing one another's burden. There is no weeping with one another. And there are a good number of churches where these things are just not taught and not happening. They are not taught as imperative 
for both the people and for the church and certainly not expected from the people. And people are quite happy when churches adopt that sort of modus operandi because most people prefer to live very private lives. And God knows that this is one sure way the church could be killed off. Privatization. Living just the way you want to live and virtually having no interest to be an integral part of what this church is doing. You haven't bought into the vision of the church. You don't pray about the vision of the church daily with the pastor, with the leadership. You're not on board. You haven't been swept off your feet. You have been, haven't really bought into, into what this church is about. Yes, you come and I'm glad you're here. I'd rather that you be here than not here. But there's something that's not happening. Privatization is a huge, insidious problem for the world out there. But unfortunately, it has infiltrated the church. There's no accountability. There's no commitment. No desire to build up one another. No interest in serious growth for the faith. See, a church may appear to be like a church, but by the way that she views the commitment of her members, she reveals if she indeed is a church. I like to put it another way. A church may, for all intents and purposes, look like a church, and Christ's sanctuary may be one of them. I dread to think that it may be, that we may look so much like a church, but by the way we demand of our people to be an integral part of the church, by the absence or the presence of that stress, it would reveal very blatantly if indeed we are a true church. How then is a church to best position herself so that she is effectively, effectively fitted to obey all the commands of Jesus and to be so well grounded that she guards herself from dying? How then must we live? How can we place ourselves, position ourselves in such a way that Satan couldn't cause the smallest dent on our, on our gathering here? The answer, amongst other things, is church membership. First of all, let me say this, and I hear this all the time, that the term church membership is not mentioned in the Bible let me say it flat out that when you argue this way that the term church membership is not even found in the Bible such an argument holds no water because there are heaps of things that we believe in that aren't found in the Bible the Trinity the Trinity is a word that is completely absent in the Bible search the Bible in vain you will never find the word Trinity there and yet we believe in the Holy Trinity we believe that God is three persons in one. Holy Communion, that phrase is never mentioned in the Bible, and yet once a month we take communion. Virgin birth, that phrase is never mentioned in the Bible, and yet we believe that Jesus is born of a virgin. The priesthood of all believers is not a term that is found in the Bible. So the mere fact that the word church membership is not found in the Bible says nothing about its validity. 
All those that I've just mentioned are beliefs that we hold very dearly, though they were not explicitly taught in Scripture, because we know that clearly, evidentially, it is implied in the teachings of the Bible. So the same with church membership. Although the word is not there, conceptually, that teaching is implied everywhere in the New Testament. Now, I don't really care if we don't use those particular words, church membership, as long as we use words that best define what we are saying. As long as we find a word that best describes what we are talking about, that's fine. And church membership could be as good as any other word. The point is this, even though that specific term, church membership, isn't found in the Bible, the teaching about being members of one another is very clear, very evident, implied all over the place in the New Testament. John Piper, to whom I am heavily indebted for this sermon, says that in fact a number of very serious commands in the New Testament for church simply cannot be followed if there is no such thing as church membership. I'll say that again. Piper says that a lot of commands that are given in the Bible simply cannot be followed through, simply cannot be obeyed, simply cannot be exercised if the church hasn't got membership intact. Firstly, take church discipline for example. Something that is clearly taught, like in the passage that I read out at the beginning of the sermon, Matthew 18, there is simply no way that a church could exercise discipline if church membership is not in place. If someone is living in blatant, brazen, immoral sin here in our midst, if someone is found out in our midst here to be living a life that is grossly, gravely, habitually immoral, how could we ask that person to come forward and for us to exercise church discipline upon that person if there is no such thing as membership? Remember the passage that I read out to you? It clearly tells us when the time comes for church discipline, the ecclesia, the church, is the final court of appeal. It says if a brother sins against you, go to him privately in person. If he will not listen to you, take two or three witnesses that they may bear witness. And if he too will not listen to them, then take it to the final arbiter. And that is the ecclesia, the church. Now which church? Just who is this brother supposed to be accountable to? Let's say someone is in our midst here is found habitually living in grave moral sin. Just how is church discipline to be exercised, to be carried out, if church membership is not in place? Can we as a church haphazardly and casually gather a few people who happen to be there that morning and subject this brother to their judgment? Can we do that? Surely the Bible is not saying that anyone who happens to show up that morning are legitimate people 
who could call this brother to account for what he is doing? Who will be there to preside over such a grave and serious matter? Who are those who have been affirmed as God's appointed leaders to rebuke and to exalt this immoral and unrepentant brother? See, if church membership is not intact, then anyone, all and sundry, regardless of their theological standing, even if he might be a liberal, but he has been attending this church for the last six months, he would be one of those who stand over tribunal before this unrepentant brother. Now how absurd would that be? When the Bible says, if he is still unrepentant, tell it to the church, surely the Bible is referring to a clearly defined group of people who, in God's order of things, form the membership of the Ecclesia. People who have pledged their beliefs and their commitment to a particular church. Surely that is the church that this man will be subjected under. That Matthew 18 speaks about. It simply boggles the mind how church discipline may be exercised if church membership is not instituted in the church. But there is an added problem here and that is this. Why would this unrepentant brother even be willing to submit himself or subject himself under such discipline. He does not remember signing any papers. He does not remember pledging any commitment to this church that he will submit to the authority of the church. He does not remember making any promise, pledging any commitment, cutting any covenant. He remembers none of those things. Why would he subject himself to that ordeal? He would just open the door and walk out. Just imagine someone in church living an immoral life and you exert church discipline on him. He'll be totally puzzled over what is happening and understandably so because he remembers no part to play in making himself submissive to the eldership here. So first, church discipline which is commanded in the Bible cannot be exercised if there is no such thing as church membership. Second point, the fact that excommunication is taught in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 5, presumes that your church will have membership in place. You know, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about excommunicating somebody from church. For some of you, you may be hearing this phrase for the first time in your life. To excommunicate someone in church is to close the door permanently to that person. He's never to come back to this particular church and if he has had leadership role those roles will be stripped from him and the entire membership will be encouraged not to associate with such a person Paul says here what have I, do, what have I to do with judging outsiders see Paul knows that that is not our task to judge outsiders Paul says what have I to do with judging outsiders is it not those who are inside whom you are to judge. God judges those outside, but you, you purge the person from within your midst. Whoa, how, how do we do that? In my entire life, in my entire ministry, I have never once seen someone excommunicated. Never. And maybe that's a blessed thing. But I have heard of real cases where unrepentant, immoral believers have been excommunicated from the church sensitively 
considerately but firmly and that is biblical but the question is this you could only excommunicate someone if there is such a thing as church membership in your church how could you excommunicate someone who isn't even a member of the church he could turn around and say I, I sign no papers I made no commitments I cut no covenant I never agreed to be held accountable and you would have been in grave trouble so secondly the teaching of excommunication presumes the institution of the church thirdly the teaching that Christians are required to submit to their leaders Hebrews 13 17 a verse that personally makes me very uncomfortable but I have to abide by that because it is in the Word of God it says obey your leaders submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account and again in first Thessalonians we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem you very highly in love because of their work. And again it's first Timoth first Timothy, let the elder who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now there's a lot going on there. But the question is this who are these leaders to whom members are to submit to if there are no members in church? to do the submitting and who will acknowledge them as true leaders of the church and again the same question may be asked why would anyone submit in the first place when they have not pledged to be members of the church so unless we have church membership in place there exists no clear prescribed boundaries within which believers are to be submissive to their leaders if a church does not have membership in place who are these people that the New Testament is referring to who must submit to their elders the question must be given a very satisfying answer and the best answer is the one I've just given these are people whom the Bible expects to be submissive people who have chosen to willingly submit themselves people who cut covenant with the leadership people who make promises to be committed to the work of the church for their own protection for their own welfare and for the growth of the church Piper cites a fourth reason for why church membership is imperative he says the New Testament demands that elders care for the flock now again unless church membership is presumed here how are elders to know whom they must care for who is this flock that they are to care for you know most elders I know of and most pastors that I know will do their utmost to care for virtually everyone who turns up in church they will and I know my own heart I know my own heart my own heart tells me to care for virtually everyone who turns up in church and that is right and that is proper and that is to, to, to be encouraged but but the question still begs to be answered who who is his flock who, who are those to whom we could say are his 
Because as far as time and energy allows, the elder can only do so much. And so the vital question is this. Is there teaching in the Bible that elders are to have special responsibility, special attention to care, now listen carefully, for a special group of people? Is there warrant in Scripture? Is there teaching in the Bible to say pastors and elders must care and specially be responsible over a specific group of people? There are two texts. Number one, Acts 20, 28. ESV says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. I smile when I read that verse because there is a flock that God has made me an overseer. I am not supposed to be an overseer over everyone. I run out of steam. I run out of energy. I am overseer over the flock that the Lord has given me. It's so clear. Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. So there is a special group over which the minister, the pastor, and the elder must be spending more time than he does elsewhere. But there is another text, Galatians 6.10. We should do good to everyone, but especially those in the household of God. God knows we run out of steam. God knows we run out of energy. Yes, do good to everyone, but especially to those who are in the household of God. So there is a special group that forms your flock. So this, the Bible teaches while the elders should care for everyone, they are specially responsible over the flock that God has given to them. This verse makes it abundantly clear that while elders must care for even the visitors, God has given him or given them a particular flock. But how are we to know who this flock is? Unless church membership is in place. Church membership most clearly implied here. There will be those who only want to attend and keep on attending, but never want to be a part, an integral part of the church. There will be those who never will choose to be accountable to be held accountable by the elders. There will be those who will resist to the end the, the idea of membership. But the sad thing is this, what they are resisting is God's appointed way for them to be cared for and protected. Now there is a fifth reason for church membership and that's taken from the metaphor of the body which God gives to the church. Of all the things that God could compare the church with, he compares the church with the body. The body has many members, it says. The eye cannot say to uh, the mouth, I don't need you. The mouth cannot say to the ear, I don't need you, because we all need one another. We form an integral part of the church. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body is one and has many members, 
So all the members of the body, though they are many, they are one. So the metaphor of the body presumes that you will have an organism that looks like a body, a functioning, thriving, pulsating church, each member being one with the other, and all coming together to function as one. So those then are the five reasons, biblical reasons, why church membership is imperative. I want to affirm this as I close, and that is this. I'm very much aware that there is a differentiation between authority and authoritarianism. One is a good thing, the other is an evil thing. Authority is a God-given thing. God authorizes certain people to hold us account in godly, loving, faithful, and yet in a firm way. Authoritarianism, however, is a different breed of animal altogether, and it's an ugly animal, it's a bad thing. You know, some very needy Christians have attached themselves to some confident, loud, charismatic leaders who will lord it over them, and they like it, because they would otherwise not be able to function. And those leaders, in turn, enjoy exerting authority over these helpless people. Gives them power. Gives them the sense that they are in command. That their boat is ship-shape. And that their church is going somewhere. Now that is not the submission that the Bible is talking about. That is the first disturbing sign of a cultish codependency. We see that in Jim Jones. We see that in David Koresh. We see that in Sang Yang Moon. But in God's prescribed teaching for the church, he has leaders with God-given authority who genuinely love, care, have compassion, are patient, but who speak very firmly with authority into our lives in order that we may not succumb to the seduction of Satan. That is their only aim, to protect you, to preserve you, and to help you grow. And that kind of authority is a good thing. So while authoritarianism is a bad and evil thing, authority is a good thing. And I know that I'm, 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 I'm cutting across the culture speaking this message here this morning. Because this message cuts against the culture of our church. The average person today, let's not talk about New Zealander, this is pervasively all over the world now, the average person today does not want to have anyone in authority over them. And that is unbiblical. We need to wake up to the fact that the Bible teaches that there are certain people that God puts in place to help us, to guide us, to encourage us. But with privilege comes responsibility. You, in turn, if you would sign up for membership, you, in turn, will make a pledge before God, not before me, before God, to commit yourself regularly to attending, to be giving your time, your resource, to the ministry and the mission of the church, to be looking out for one another, to be building each other up, 
to be working towards reconciliation when there is discord and sin within two members of the body, to submit to the authority of the leadership that God has ordained for this church, to do your utmost to preserve the unity of this church, when you see any fissure coming, to just put a stop to it and speak good of people and not ill, do not exhibit a party spirit and a divisive spirit. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. I think it's a good thing to ask of one another. All right, more could be said. Our time is up, but very briefly, those then are the four reasons for why church membership, even though it is not mentioned explicitly in that phraseology in the Bible, is a biblical thing, for without which we just can't function as a church. Shall we pray? Lord our Father, we we just blown away by the fact that your word leaves nothing uncovered that are good for us. You lay down your divine laws for our good, for our protection. We may not like it, we may not resonate with it, we may want to rebel against it, we may like to resist it, but Father give us humility. Give us humility to know that if this is from you, help me to abide. Help me to receive this well in my heart because it is from your divine law and to resist it would be to resist you. Give us such a, an attitude we pray, Father. And Father, I pray for Christ's sanctuary. It's five and a half years old now, and we reach a milestone in the life of our church in this season as we appoint elders and as we institute church membership. And Lord, as we change, there is always uncertainties. As we change, there is always discord and little fissures here and there. But we pray that, Father, these things would not lead to, to anything huge. We pray that you will preserve us because the leadership has waited long before you, waited on you for its timing. And they sense that this is the time now. The church has grown a certain measure of maturity now. And so, Father, we pray that we will all be in one place. So give us grace, Father, to, to submit ourselves one to another, we pray. And we pray for the years to come for Christ's sanctuary, that you would take it to a place that you would take it to, Father, for your honor and for your glory and for your renown. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.